you just woke up on the 24th of February hearing those sounds of heavy bombing in the center of the Ukraine, in the capital, I never thought I will experience such events in my entire life. LGBTQI people are so visible, not only on the front line in the army, but also volunteering, doing all those heavy work to support everybody in Ukraine. Russians seen open LGBTQI people as a threat to their regime. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Trans athletes scored their first points at the U.S. Supreme Court, drag stars back up Kelsey Ballerini at the CMT Awards and she backs them, and Ukraine's Elena Shevchenko fights rights battles and the Russian invasion. Those stories and more this week because you've chosen This Way Out. I'm Kaylin Hardman. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With NewsWrap a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending in April 8, 2023. The U.S. Supreme Court's first ruling in a case involving transgender students and sports has come down on the side of trans athletes. The court refused West Virginia's request to reinstate its ban on athletes competing in sports based on the student's gender identity. The ban has been temporarily enjoined by lower courts while its constitutionality is being challenged. As is often the case with emergency requests, the justices provided no reasoning. Only far-right conservative Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas wanted the higher court to consider the case. The April 6th decision is a victory for 12-year-old Becky Pepper Jackson and her transgender counterparts across the state. She's been competing in her middle school girls' track and field team while undergoing puberty-delaying treatment and hormone therapy. Her teammates and coaches have welcomed her even though she's reportedly not that good. Her performance belies the belief by band proponents that trans girls and women have an unfair competitive advantage. Becky is being represented by the American Civil Liberties Union and the queer advocacy group Lambda Legal. Their joint statement points out that Becky has been a member of the girls' team for the past three going-on-four seasons without any problems. It calls the state's actions a baseless and cruel effort to keep Becky from where she belongs, playing alongside her peers as a teammate and as a friend. West Virginia is one of at least 20 Republican-controlled U.S. states to deny transgender athletes the chance to participate in school sports, usually targeting girls and women. Bans in Idaho and Tennessee are also being challenged in federal court. More challenges are expected. Meanwhile, the U.S. state-level anti-trans frenzy continues around the country. Democratic Kansas Governor Laura Kelly has been vetoing legislation to ban kindergarten through 12th grade trans females from competing in school sports as themselves for the past three years. Republican supermajorities in the state House and Senate overrode her veto on April 5th. Governor Kelly is expected to veto another measure to define sex as either male or female at birth. It would also ban trans people from changing the gender marker on their government IDs and other legal documents, and deny their right to use bathrooms and other sex-segregated facilities based on their gender identity. Her Republican opposition will likely override that veto, too. 
ACLU of Kansas LGBTQ plus legal fellow D.C. Heigart put it bluntly. We know their real goal is to erase trans people from public life and push us back into the closet. Indiana and Idaho's Republican governors both signed bans on gender-affirming care for trans people under the age of 18. Governor Eric Holcomb of Indiana expressed concerns about a legal challenge when he signed the bill outlawing hormone treatment and puberty blockers for the purpose of gender transition for young trans people on April 5th. He justified the measure by citing its ban on gender-affirming surgeries for trans teens, even though such medical intervention is extremely rare. Holcomb said, Permanent gender-changing surgery should occur as an adult and not as a minor. Governor Brad Little of Idaho took it even farther to the Republican right by making it a felony for doctors and other healthcare professionals to provide gender-affirming care for under-18 trans people. The legislation includes prison terms of up to 10 years. Little's April 4th letter to lawmakers on signing the measure explained that our society plays a role in protecting minors from surgeries or treatments that can irreversibly damage their healthy bodies. About a dozen other Republican-dominated states have now enacted laws to deny gender-affirming health care to young transgender people. North Dakota Republicans set a scary record by advancing 10 anti-LGBTQ bills just this week. Eight of them are already heading to Governor Doug Burgum. They include a ban on gender-affirming health care for minors and criminal penalties for doctors who provide it. Another bans kindergarten through college-aged trans athletes from competing based on their gender identity in school sports. Two bills amended by the Senate have gone back to the House for consideration. They would prevent trans people from changing their legal gender on government documents and force them to use bathrooms and other sex-segregated public facilities based on their birth certificate gender. It's not clear how Governor Burgum will respond to the anti-queer avalanche on his desk. He vetoed a bill last week that would have allowed teachers and other school personnel to misgender and deadname trans students. The Senate had enough votes to override that veto, but the effort failed in the House. Another measure awaiting Burgum's signature virtually bans family-friendly drag shows as adult-oriented performances. By most accounts, lawmakers in Republican-controlled U.S. states have introduced more than 450 bills to restrict the rights and self-expression of LGBTQ people just in the first three months of this year. New Jersey is the rare exception for state-level trans rights. Democratic Governor Phil Murphy's April 4th executive order designates the state as a safe haven for people seeking gender-affirming care. The order directs departments and agencies to protect people in the Garden State who both receive and provide gender-affirming care. It explicitly forbids state officials from cooperating with other states seeking to impose civil or criminal liability or professional sanctions on gender-affirming health care providers. Murphy is the second Democratic governor to order protections for trans people and their health care providers in recent months. Minnesota's Governor Tim Waltz issued a similar executive order in early March. U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona announced new interpretations this week of Title IX, which would prohibit schools, colleges, and universities from categorically banning transgender students from participating on sports teams consistent with their gender identity just because of who they are. The landmark 1972 Civil Rights Amendment bans bias in education based on gender. The proposals now enter a public comment period. 
Equality activists are giving the proposed new rules mixed reviews because of the allowed exceptions. An education department statement said that the new interpretations allow schools flexibility to develop team eligibility criteria that serve important educational objectives, such as ensuring fairness in competition or preventing sports-related injury. University of Colorado Law School Associate Professor Scott Skinner-Thompson specializes in LGBTQ plus issues. He told the Washington Post, the proposed rule helps clarify that these blanket bans on transgender athletes are in violation of Title IX and is a really positive development. However, Skinner Thompson found allowing exclusion in some cases deeply troubling. When it comes to the hard cases, this is saying that trans kids can be discriminated against. Progressive Democratic U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York criticized the exceptions in a tweet, saying, Absolutely no reason for the Biden administration to do this. It is indefensible and embarrassing. The admin can still walk this back, and they should. It's a disgrace. The Biden administration has been denouncing the wave of anti-queer, mostly anti-trans state legislation for several weeks, mostly throughout White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. Finally, a federal judge in Tennessee has extended his temporary restraining order preventing a state law banning family-friendly drag shows from taking effect until May 26. This according to one of the attorneys representing a drag-centric theater group challenging the law. A trial date has been set for May 22nd. Trump-appointed U.S. District Court Judge Thomas L. Parker has already suggested that the wording of the law is vague and that it may cross a line regarding free speech and other constitutionally protected rights. A number of high-profile country music stars have already spoken out against the proposed drag show ban, including Marin Morris, Brooke Eden, and Dolly Parton. They were joined on April 2nd by co-host Kelsey Ballerini at the CMT Awards, a fan-based celebration of country music. Singing her hit, If You Go Down, I'm Going Down Too, on a stage featuring a typical traditional family values white picket fence, Ballerini was accompanied by RuPaul's Drag Race veterans Manila Luzon, Kennedy Davenport, Jan Sport, and Olivia Lux, who danced and performed backup vocals. In an exclusive post-performance interview backstage, three of the fierce queens told Entertainment Tonight what the inclusive appearance meant to them. Just like all these amazing country music artists, we drag queens are also artists and we deserve a space to be ourselves, express ourselves, and create something wonderful for everyone to enjoy. I feel like even the song, you know, if you're going down, I'm going down too. It is about celebration of being a community. And I think that's what we did on the stage tonight. And I really hope that that transcended to people as well. And it felt like it did. And if there's one thing, do not mess with the LGBTQ plus community, okay? We're here, we're queer, get used to it, baby. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending April 8th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. 
help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay healthy. And I'm Kaylin Hardman. Stay safe. G'day, I'm Nate Byrne, weather presenter on ABC TV in Australia. Hi there, I'm Mon Shafter from ABC Queer. And you're listening to This Way Out, the weekly LGBTIQ plus radio magazine for all our gender and sexually diverse communities around the world. And those who love them. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter. Email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. Lesbian feminist Olena Shevchenko has been a prominent Ukrainian human rights activist for years. On February 24, 2022, her life and the LGBTQ movement in her country was changed forever. Since the Russian invasion, her work has become even more significant, making her one of Time magazine's Women of the Year. Shevchenko left her war-torn homeland to speak at the World Pride Human Rights Conference in Sydney, Australia. While she was there, This Way Out correspondent Barry Mackay sat down with her for this exclusive interview. Can you tell me about the situation for LGBTQI people in the Ukraine before the Russian incursion? What rights did they have and how accepted were they in the wider Ukrainian community? Taken back to their, you know, years before the war, like even one year and a half before, I would say like in Ukraine we achieved uh, a lot during the recent decade because we were able, for instance, to go to the streets to organize the protests, to demand our rights. We were visible in media. We talked to journalists openly. So many people did coming out in the recent years going to talk about their life experiences. And we also successfully worked with different specialists. I'm talking about media, psychologist groups, even uh, with the police. We organized so many trainings and we also did an advocacy to change our legislation to reach at least some equality for LGBTQI people. But unfortunately, that was just the first steps in our fight and then the full-scale invasion came to Ukraine. And of course, it is a very hard times, especially for LGBTQI communities now, because on the paper, in our legislation, we are still invisible. We are not recognized as equal people, as equal families. So during the war, we suffered a lot because of that. How did things change for LGBTQI plus Ukrainians after what Moscow calls their special military operation into the country? What's life like now? Everything changed uh, pretty dramatically. You know, that's uh, just one of the examples. That's my example. Then you just woke up on the 24th of February hearing those sounds of bombing 
heavy bombing in the center of the Ukraine, in the capital. I never thought I will experience such events in my entire life. And then you just realize that it, it can be the last day of your life and you don't know what to do. You don't know who will help you. And uh, my experience also showed that even being privileged, because I, I have been the part of the international human rights community for so many years, more than 15 years, I became pretty vulnerable in the situation. So nobody just came to save my life. And what we can say about the casual, regular LGBTQI people who just you know, lost everything. They just couldn't call the police. They couldn't uh, call the emergency. They just lost their jobs immediately. They can't even go to the general shelters because of the level of violence there and non-recognition because they can't go there as a family. They will be separated. The same applies to those who left the country because they are not visible as a family, as a relatives, they're not seen as an equal people, persons. And additionally, the main fear for LGBTQI people was that under Russian occupation, there will be no place for LGBTQI people, especially those who are visible or open, because we know what happened already on Donbass, in Luhansk, in Crimea, then so many of our sisters and brothers just disappear somewhere. And I think they've been killed because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Those territories which been occupied since 2014 and still under occupation, so we even don't have an access to receive any of information. We just know it from the others who were so, like, lucky to escape from those basements, you know, tortures, killings, rapes, everything. Have many of the LGBTQI plus community fled the country and where have they gone? I would say like in general, uh, that's the same percentage of the general population which left the country and mainly that's women like lesbians, couples with children. They tried to save their children from the war and that's understandable. But almost all of them, I mean those who uh, flee the country with our support, they want to come back. They want to come back to those homes which are still there. And even in those cases, then they don't have any houses. For instance, we have many members of LGBTQI communities who became displaced twice in 2014 from Donbass or Lugansk or Crimea, and then they came to Ukrainian territories, and now it came up again, like the second phase, and they lost everything twice. And they want to come back, they want to rebuild the country, but they want some guarantees, at least some equality. Some acceptance acceptance as well. But in terms of acceptance, I think the general society are not against the equality, especially now, then LGBTQI people are so visible, not only on the front line in the army, but also volunteering, doing all those heavy work to support everybody in Ukraine. So I think that our state need to stand and say that this is a very right time 
to say that LGBTQI people need to be recognized is equal. That's not about specific rights. That's not about some, you know, additional rights. That's just equality for everybody. I saw a story that there was a transgender person helping out with the resistance effort. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's our friend uh, who are now in the army. And we have many of those lesbians, gay, trans people who are serving in the military now, protecting our country. What's happened to the members of the LGBTQI plus community who are in areas now occupied by the Russian military? Do you know much more about that? There are so many people who are still on those territories, and I will tell you why. Uh, because it can be seen as a simple answer. Like, if you need to be evacuated, you need to evacuate yourself from the occupied territories. But that's not so easy. First of all, because it is pretty dangerous. And the second reason, that usually LGBTQI people and women are those who are taking care about others. People with disabilities, elderly people, small children, so they just can't leave. There are no ways to leave somebody without support. So they are staying there and trying to survive somehow. We are trying to give them with many ways, trying to seek, you know, all the time different ways to deliver the humanitarian support, medicines, hormones, everything possible. And we know, like, those people are there. They are <laughs> waiting for the deoccupation, and they are fighting on their front line. Where they can and what they can do, they do. And a lot of people, I expect, have to hide their sexuality. Yeah, many people just trying to avoid any other contacts with others because, you know, due to Russian tradition and the laws, somebody can go to their militaries and saying, like, I know the person from the LGBTQI communities. With Russians and all those, uh, you know, traditional values, protecting families, things which they impose to different territories and also promote on international area, it is very important to understand that it's not just about the identity, LGBTQI, that's also kind of combination. They see us, LGBTQI people, open LGBTQI people, as a threat to their regime because we are doing this civil work on the freedoms or fighting of our rights, and this is the main threat for them. That's why they are seeking for those activists and trying to torture them, you know, doing many bad things and even killing them. Have there been any issues with Ukrainians getting refugee status in certain countries because of their sexuality? Before the war, I knew several people who came to different countries in Europe seeking for the refugee status, and it was not so simple. It is still, because now for Ukrainians, due to the war, so many countries did the exceptional rules which allow us to go to some country and to stay a while there, receiving support, receiving some shelters, receiving some housing, and also a possibility to work. This is something which is still lack 
in general for all the immigrants and refugees, unfortunately. So these exceptions, by the way, show that that can be also done for everybody else. Because it's not just Ukrainians who are escaping from the violence and death threats. There are so many countries in the world and so many people who are suffering from the same thing but they don't have any possibility to go to another country, more safe country, because they are not allowed to do that. I'm thinking of countries such as Poland, which have set up special LGBT-free zones, or maybe Hungary, which uh, doesn't have a terribly LGBTQI-friendly government. Yeah, unfortunately, on the political level, we, we know how many countries are still on the stake and trying to push back on LGBTQI equality. The Poland is a very good example, by the way, because Poland gave shelter to so many Ukrainians, and this is like the understandable country for many Ukrainians, and this is so close to Ukraine. So this is why many people trying to go there to be close to relatives, you know, and trying to come back in any chance, then it will be the chance. But those laws in Poland, they are awful. So this is not the best country for LGBTQI refugees or migrants or displaced persons. So mainly they are going to Poland and then trying to go to neighbor Germany, for instance, to be there. And funny thing about LGBTQI free zones, then the war started on the second week we established a connection with another organization, ELC, European Lesbian Community, which I belong to. They came to Poland and organized few shelters there. So we were able to bring people to the border and gave them on the border so they can host there in Poland. And those shelters were based in LGBT so-called free zones. So. The reality is that people in those regions in Poland, they are pretty friendly. They helped a lot. But the thing is, the problem is on the political level. So that is the good task for European Union to do. So the general populace have been pretty open to receiving LGBTQI plus refugees in those countries, but politically it's been difficult. It is, yeah, that's, that's on the political level, seriously. It's not about LGBTQI issues, that's about political regime, that's about authoritarianism, it's about the support of, you know, such called traditional values, which is proposed and, you know, pushing by Russia. So we just need to step up as a European community, as a world community, and just to revise this approach to the laws, norms, and everything like that. Olena Shevchenko's LGBTQI Human Rights Organization website is insight-ukraine.org. That's insight-ukraine.org. Her interview continues next time on This Way Out. The whole team of my organization decided to stay in Ukraine. We did um, an amazing job, honestly, starting from the first day of the full-scale invasion. I'm Barry Mackay.
Thanks for discovering This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Wrap was reported this week by Carolyn Hardman and Michael LeBeau and produced by Brian DeShazer. Our correspondent was Barry McKay. Kelsey Bellarini and Friends and Billy Joel performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed it for Juan Rodney Music. This way, I thanks listener donors Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. They help make this program possible, and so can you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappelle and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Greg Gordon. We thank you for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on KGAY, Thousand Palms, Coachella Valley, California, WPKN, Bridgeport, Connecticut, CKUW, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and close to 200 local community trusts here on the internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned.